Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today, we have a very special guest that I'm sure a lot of you know, but if you don't yet, I'm really excited for you to get to know this person because they're a fantastic horseman, and I've really enjoyed their content, and I'm super excited to have them on the podcast today for discussion. That person is Lockie Phillips from Emotional Horsemanship. He is a fantastic horse person, and our views align so much in horsemanship, so I'm really, really interested interested in hearing his story and being able to discuss with him today and have you guys listen to the podcast with him. So tune in and listen up for the excellent discussion that we have on all things horsemanship. But before then, let me just let you guys all know that we are having a big sale in my shop milestone equestrian store with up to 80% off apparel items and some discounts on our bridles. So you can check that out at shop milestone ec shop milestone e com, and just head to the website to shop our clearance section there's a lot of great deals and they are selling out fast also for anyone who's interested in any of my tutorials or any behind the scenes stuff you can check out my patreon channel p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s s-d-equus and there's a ton of tutorials behind the scenes and more for anyone who's interested in seeing more of my content but without further ado let's get right back into this discussion i'm so excited to share with you and i hope you all enjoy okay so for those who don't know me my name is Lockie phillips i am a horse trainer i am a equestrian performance coach a hoof care provider and a clinician i live in spain um, i'm australian by birth but i live in spain I create online courses, um, I coach equestrians, I have subscriptions and video libraries, and I tour the world now. I can say that. I tour the world now giving clinics. Um, emotional horsemanship is um, the method, the name I give my method, um, and it's been a long journey to get to that point. I'm also a retired professional um, dancer by trade and a certified um, instructor and trainer and hoof care provider. So that's who I am. And I have a website called emotionalhorsemanship.com where you can find all information about me and all of my uh, materials, courses, services, etc. That's great. Thank you so much. That's cool that you used to dance too. I've, I've, I, don't, I can't dance at all, but I've noticed a lot of similarities between like dancing um, and horses, how they're judged and whatnot. So that's pretty cool. What, in your opinion, would you say are like your main concerns for horses in the sport in terms of welfare that you think like need to be addressed the soonest? Um, like what would your main focuses be in terms of like igniting change in the horse world to better the welfare of horses so to make the most rapid effective and realistic change in the lives of sport horses no matter if they're top level grand prix or regional sport horses in a local area the fastest way to enact change is to have the FEI follow their own guidelines and their own rule book that they have in black and white English and to completely comply with their own guidelines 
that they have set for the training and welfare of their horses because their guidelines are actually really good. They're not vague or open-ended, although some of the terms that they use, such as pain and fear in training, they haven't defined those terms. So they say that no horse should experience pain or fear in training, and yet there's no definition offered of what would constitute pain and fear in training. And I believe it is on that technicality that we are having such an issue with sport horse social license to operate. Um, and by the way, I'm not a competitive equestrian. I've never competed. I personally don't have interest in competing. However, I do have clients who compete and are interested in comp competing and they continue to work with me anyway. Despite being a performance coach, I don't compete and I'm not interested in it. That's just me personally. However, I am an equine professional certified. And so I do have a right to have a say at this conversation. And even the FEI rule book says that they welcome the feedback and opinions of all, be they lay people or top level competitors. So even the FEI says that they welcome everybody's commentary on their sport. So I believe it is on that technicality that we are having such a problem because no one is clear on what constitutes pain and fear in horse training. And because of this simple bureaucratic oversight or uh, intentional open-ended uh, non-defined terms, being left in their rule book, who knows, um, horses are now paying a bill that they didn't owe and should never have to pay. That's not my opinion. That's just objective reality. One example would be Saint Boy at the Pentathlon. Though the Pentathlon wasn't regulated by the FEI, the FEI in retrospect did step in to assist the Pentathlon Committee in regulating uh, equestrian sport and did consult with them on equine welfare after St. Boy and his riders meltdown at the Olympics in Tokyo. But um, that would be one example of a horse in a top level sport, be it FEI or not, that experienced the worst kind of welfare violation and thousands, hundreds of thousands stood by silently and allowed it to happen. Um, to the point where it was so blatantly obvious that no one could step in and, and say, oh, but that was a moment in time. No one could step in and say, oh, but it depends how you look at it. The trainer punched the horse. Let's just make that really clear. The coach who stood by punched the horse. So it was so obvious. It was so obvious what was happening there. At the time when this happened, I was trying to get some colleagues of mine at the time, colleagues of mine to get together to discuss sport horse welfare during the Tokyo Olympics. I was ready to discuss it after I first saw the, after I saw the first dressage competition. I was ready to get on Zoom with someone, record something and put, make something public about it. I was ready for that. Um, but colleague after colleague declined my invitation, maybe because I was talking to the wrong people and maybe I needed to improve the way I spoke about it, but um, they declined because, quote, they didn't want to alienate their client base who were themselves competitive equestrians. 
So we're in this vicious cycle of nobody speak to the pink elephant in the room or nobody put their head up and say, hey, the emperor has no clothes. What are we doing? Like, what are we doing exactly? Why can't we just make it better? But it's a very long-winded answer, Shelby, so please get used to long-winded answers with me. But, like, first step, if the FEI actually defined their terms and followed their own guidelines, I believe huge steps would go forward. We wouldn't fix all the problems, but huge steps could be taken forward. I completely agree. That's very much how I feel as well, because their rule book, honestly, it bothers me a little more that they actually have those things in their rules and then not follow them. Like, I would respect them more if they just didn't have anything about welfare in their rule book or if they changed the wording of it to not say like pain or fear or anything like that um because then they're basically it's virtue signaling they have it in the rule book so they can be like look we we, we care about horses we care about horse welfare it says it right there but then in practice it doesn't say anything um mm. like because they don't actually uphold it and the saint boy situation was so globalized that like people outside of the horse world saw it and I've seen a huge shift in how the everyday person views equestrians. Um, and even just talking to like the average human being about horse stuff and like telling them stuff that is quote unquote normal to horse people. And then that you, you see how appalled by it the average human being is when they look at it at face value without the same indoctrination and normalization that you get in the horse world. So I found that interesting. But the St. Boyd situation, um, that kind of, in some ways, it bothered me too because I think that part of the reason why people had such an easy time picking that rider apart was, yes, because the coach punched the horse, but also since she's not a big name in the horse world and is just some triathlon right. rider, I think she right. was a little bit of a scapegoat because yes. Martin Fuchs punched a horse in an FEI class like before because his horse was – panicking and stressed which is i mean if you punch your horse i'm not totally surprised that they're entering the arena that stressed and he right. didn't punch it in the face it was on the neck but he punched the horse and it was caught on video and this is after he was also caught on video whipping his horse um like overhand whipping and technically again all of that is technically legal by fei definition because if he doesn't hit the horse more than three times it is justified, and they also don't have anything in their rule book to specify that, like, punching the neck isn't allowed. So he didn't really meet any repercussions for that. And on the flip side, if someone went after him in the same way that they did for St. Boy's Rider, he would get way, way more defense because it's one of the top riders in the world. Um, so I found the Tokyo Olympics situation pretty interesting because I've always felt that horse people have a way – easier time criticizing green riders or riders that are small and not viewed as like an upper level rider or like a even not not even professional because if you're a professional that's not in the fei ring no one cares like they'll crucify you and tear you apart um but i think that they're like once you hit a certain level of eliteness in the horse world people will basically defend you doing anything honestly because it, it's been amazing to me the stuff that upper level riders can get caught doing to their horses and people will defend it even like in martin fuchs case like 
you could look at what he does and you could go, I still think he's an objectively good rider, but what he did in that moment is wrong. And the fact that so few horse people can do that, they can't look at their idols and separate the fact that they like the person as the rider in most cases from the fact that they did something bad in that moment. And they're not willing to call them out for that. And if you do call them out, then you get hordes of people trying to bully you so for the people who do know it's wrong i think there's a lot of fear in speaking out because people leverage the mob mentality to try to silence other people from speaking out and make them scared to talk about these upper level riders but meanwhile if you have a beginner rider who gets a bad distance to a jump and grabs their horse's mouth and horse gapes its mouth in the moment and yes in that moment it would still hurt the horse but the context is different because it's not deliberate and intentional and they're also not serving as a face of the entire industry at the upper levels so that's one of the problems too that i've noticed with the fei thing like i think the rule book changes would be good because then it would hold like or not changes like rule book actually holding them up in practice um because it would change how upper level riders have to present themselves and they're setting a standard but it's so ingrained in our industry that we almost need to teach people to be more comfortable like calling out their idols and re recognizing the fact that someone being really good at something does not mean they're infallible like they can make mistakes and i'm of the mind too that they're they're not all terrible people but they get away with stuff and they're enabled in doing it so then they can continue doing it and they justify it because of that um but i think that they could change for the better so i don't like writing them off completely as human beings um because i honestly like i grew up doing a lot of harsh stuff with horses too and i would have probably done some stuff that is similar to what they've been caught doing on camera and the, the fact that i did it didn't mean that i didn't love or care for my horses it was just the place that i was in my riding career and me doing what i had been taught was okay to do and i think that's the problem with a lot of the upper level riders is they have this social hierarchy where it's normalized and it's okay to do so then they get to the point where they're untouchable when they continue winning and winning and they build this persona that allows them to not be criticized because there's this assumption that people at the upper levels are automatically the best of the best when it comes to welfare, riding, and everything involved with that. It's um, a tale as old as the hills when it comes to human nature. We have a monarch system, a totalitarian, top-down tier system where you have the few elites at the top on Mount Olympus, they are the royalty, and then you have the serfs underneath them. And not only is this socially conditioned into us, it is stitched into the very fabric of our behaviors. It's stitched into the very fabric of the equestrian industrial financial complex. It's stitched into the fabric of legislation surrounding animal welfare, which continually turns a blind eye to the gray area which horses consistently have sat in for the last century since the Industrial Revolution uh, gave rise to the engine and horses started to become, um, you know, laid by the wayside by our own technology. And so I believe it would be um unrealistic to expect people to speak ill of their idols people are just not going to do it go to a beyonce concert 
ask the first 5,000 people from the front of the stage to speak a bad word about her and they just won't. They just won't. And so I believe that's a human condition that's very, very ingrained in most of us. Most of us feel very safe, protected, and defensive of our tribal mentalities. And if you try to take that away from people, educate them out of it, or indoctrinate them against it, they will resent you very, very vehemently. And the pushback won't just be no, thank you. I would not like to do that. The pushback will be, you're wrong. You're toxic. You're the problem. You're the scapegoat now. So I have now given up trying to ask people to stop, uh, trying to ask people to bring a critical thought mentality to their idols where they can understand that two things can be true at the same time. A top writer can be extremely good at their job very, very qualified, amazing artists in the saddle, beautiful horse people. They can love their horses. They can be all of that we idolize them for, and they can engage in problematic practices. That is the yin and the yang. That is the dark side of the moon and the light side of the moon. So when you stop seeing things as 2D flat, shallow objects and start seeing them with the depth that they are, that requires people to have critical thought and we, re we live in a short form information consuming uh, time where people have been conditioned and reinforced to not consume long form deep uh, content and information. So our education fundamentally is now being stitched into a shallow format. So I believe in meeting people where they're at. There are a few people there are a handful of people whose brains are wired a bit differently, perhaps yourself included, Shelby, who we do deep dives. We're professionals, we're researchers, we're trainers, we're enthusiasts, uh, we're private people, and we're professional people. We do deep dives. We dig deep holes on different subjects. When we go to do a different subject, we don't just dig the turf up. We go all the way down to the bedrock. We go all the way down past the bedrock, past the fossils, past the gold, all the way down to the core. That's what we do. Anytime we do something, we do it deep. And so our job is to do that deep research and gather that understanding, then condense it into bite-sized, understandable snippets to attract the attention of, quote-unquote, the masses that are conditioned to consume only quick, digestible information, but we present them with the information that counters the problematic information that they regularly uh, come into contact with. That's what I believe needs to happen. I don't believe asking people to question their idols is, is going to happen. What we need to do is to get them thinking about the horse, not about the rider. Not about the rider. Think about the horse. Let me give you an example. So... Last year in September, I was doing a clinic. I'm not gonna say which location because I don't want to implicate someone un unnecessarily. However, and I have deep respect for this person I'm about to speak about anonymously. Deep respect for them. We continue to be in contact. We have worked together after the clinic. However, at the clinic, they showed up with very nicely trained saddle horse in a brand new uh, spade bit with quite a bit of leverage on it. And that's no problem for me if you're qualified to work with that. I've got no issue with that. 
And um, we were in fact working at the beginning of the writing section of the clinic. We were working on softening terrain cues. So finding a soft feel, but doing it from a very, very specific lens that I bring to this exercise that most people don't. So we weren't working on behaviorism. We weren't trying to condition a specific response out of the horse to the rain. We were trying to do research in how the horse feels about reins, period, which involves allowing the horse to express themselves with a great deal of behavioral variability to our very simple rain cues. So that's what we were doing. And um, this rider was concerned that she was going to condition the horse to chew on the bit or do quote unquote bad behavior to the bit. And I said, well, how long have they worked in this bit? They said, today's the first day. I went, oh. They went, because this weekend I'm doing a competition with this horse and I need to show in this bit. It was a Wednesday. The competition was on Saturday. And they thought, I thought it would be a good idea to introduce this bit at the clinic today. And a clinic environment's already tricky for a horse because they're in a new place. They're in new horses. They're doing new things. And I said, oh, and I had my hand on the horse's shoulder and I was looking up at her in the saddle and I said, have you considered the possibility that the horse finds the bit uncomfortable? And the quote, the response was, but he's a ranch horse. And I went, but have you considered that the bit might make the horse uncomfortable? And they repeated, but he's a ranch horse. He has to wear it. And in my mind, I went, okay, I didn't expect that they would make that connection. So I learned something new that day, that people can hear the number two and read the number 42 and that there's a disconnect there. There's a, there's a mental gymnastics there that I don't do with horses that many people are doing. And in that mental gymnastics exists tradition. It exists what my family did. It exists what job I want to do. It exists my selfish desires. It exists what I like to see horses wearing, what I believe horses can and should not do, that most people aren't looking at it plainly, simply, naively, wantonly, naively from just the horse's point of view. Because I was like, have you considered that the horse finds it uncomfortable? No, they had considered all that other stuff, but not that the horse finds it uncomfortable. The horse was supposed to just get with the program. So that's all that was said. I explained in more detail, but in the moment when they repeated, he's a ranch horse, he has to wear it. I shrugged my shoulders and I said, well, there's the conflict. And then I walked away and I immediately changed the energy of the clinic and we just got on with a different exercise. I didn't make a point of it. I didn't drill her on it. I didn't try to make her feel bad for it. And I also didn't try to change her mind because I realized that wasn't the time or place for me to change her mind. If it was the time, if even if I was the right person to change her mind, I probably am not, especially not in a group clinic environment. I was like, well, I'm not going to change that attitude today. So maybe I can lead by example and we can find a resolution here today. And we did. We found a resolution with the bit and the reins and the horse went very comfortably throughout the clinic. And so that's an example that I bring to the table because we don't have to agree with each other. And this is where I take big issue now with social media conduct. I agree with you. I disagree with you. Grow the fuck up, everyone. We yes. all need to grow up, put our big boy, big girl, big whoever panties on, 
and stop treating this like playground tit for tat. Yes. I am very comfortable only agreeing 30% with somebody. Say, well, 70% of what you're saying, I personally don't agree with. I'm intellectualizing it and I understand it from your perspective. I agree with 30%. And you know what? I find common ground with you 30%. How fantastic. We all love our horses today. I don't agree with your equipment choice. I don't agree with your behavior. That doesn't mean at the same time that I wouldn't defend a horse at, at a clinic or in a lesson. I've been in lessons when, this is a quote from a lesson maybe eight years ago to a really good client of mine. The quote was, if you kick that horse one more time, I'm dragging you off that horse and I'm finishing your lesson. Quote. That's awesome. Now, I, I had built a rapport with this client. I, was, I would go to her family's house for dinner. We were very, very close. And I knew that this client, her parents were going through a divorce and she was starting to take it out in her horse in the lessons. Because I would get on the horse and the horse would go. She would get on him and he would stand still. He was taking good care of her. And the good care was, you don't get to ask me of things today. You just need to be with me. And she would have a tantrum, kick, kick, kick. He wouldn't go. And we worked on it technically. And then she just booted him. And I said, if you kick him one more time, I'm dragging you off that horse and I'm finishing your lesson. And she knew that I say that with love. We are still in touch today. This client of mine still in touch today. And I've been in clinic environments where someone was flapping the legs on the horse in a barrel racing fashion. And I was at a barrel racing environment and I didn't try to make them feel bad about it. I just said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everyone just pump the brakes, pump the brakes. Can I get you to consider a different perspective in the use of your legs today? Just today, can I get you just to experiment with something different? Now, it might mean that you're going to get less go from your horse in this moment, but it might mean in one year's time, you don't need to flap half as much. What would that be like? How would that change your life? How would that change your horse's life? Because if you overwhelm people too much with a sense of empathic and ethical responsibility for their horse, if they're not accustomed to that, then you create a situation where you create this or that mentality in a, in a person where they do go, I agree with you or I don't. And that's how they defend themselves. I don't agree with you and you're wrong. So that makes me safe against information that threatens me, right? Rather than oh, saying, yeah. oh, that was hard to hear. Oh, that's an uncomfortable subject. Oh, that's like swallowing medicine that I don't like. Mm -hmm. But maybe I needed the medicine. Yes. And so... That's where I try to be because I believe that good horsemanship is not about how do I get what I want from my horse. It is how can you manage conflicts with your horse yes. and come out the other side where everybody wins, you, the horse, the trainer, and the ethical code of conduct, where all four quadrants, those are my quadrants, my quadrants are you, the horse, ethical code of conduct, and the coach or the methods that you're using. And I want all of those to succeed yeah. at the same time to find balance. And so we've got to find that place where we can bring people to a level of emotional health in themselves, where they can have a disagreement with their horse and no one gets their nose out of joint about it. Both sides, horse and human, are able to listen to each other 
and navigate their way through it. One of my horses, Sanson, he disagrees with me on a regular basis. He says, this is what's happening. I'm not doing that and you're not going to make me. So that's, that's what's happening. And I go, right, okay, can we talk about this? And then I make a decision. Does this have to happen right now? And if it has to happen right now, then I use the most ethical training techniques to make it happen, such as food reward, such as non-escalating pressure, such as, you know, insert techniques here. But if it doesn't have to happen today, then maybe I'll say, hmm, actually, I defer to you on this one. You're absolutely right. I was giving a lesson with him last week to my intern. No, to my friend who was visiting and he'd already had a long day. He'd had a couple of lessons and a trim. And he's got really long duration in his behaviors. He can go for hours, generally. But this day, we got to the end. And he carried my friend around. And it was good. And we were talking. And then he just stopped. Just stopped very respectfully. He just stopped. And I said, ask him to go. Gentle leg on. And he just stopped not only did he stop he stopped and he lifted his chest arched his neck and presented himself he said i'm beautiful that's enough <laughs> he that's said awesome. that's, he said that's enough and i paused and i the old equestrian voice came in the back of my head and said make him do it yeah and i went where did that voice come from flying across the ocean out of my mouth where did that come flying up from the pits of hell i said down voice and I went, no, look at this horse. He's been going for over an hour and a half with not, didn't put a foot wrong. Not a foot wrong, absolute angel. And I went, you know what? He's absolutely right, finish, we get off. Yeah. He's I think that, right. like, it, it's so interesting listening to how you coach your students because I think that, like, with the whole agree-disagree thing, I think that a lot of equestrians take disagreement as, like, a personal attack. And, like, they right. can't handle people not agreeing with their opinions because they take it as, like, someone saying, you are inferior to me and I'm better than you and my opinion is, like, right and you're completely wrong. Oh, and then and they you know get defensive. Is? Yeah. That, that, I spoke about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago called Empowered Curiosity, but it's worth a re-mention here. Let us do some regression therapy, Shelby. So you're at the supermarket with your mum, and she's holding you by the hand and you're tired, you're hypoglycemic, you've got low blood sugar and you're surrounded by the candy bars at the checkout. And you say to mum, mom, can I have a candy bar? And she says, no. Now, when that parent says no to that hypoglycemic child, shows you what style parenting they've had up until that point. Is that child accustomed? To hearing no is that child prepared for rejection is that child prepared to handle conflicts in the world around them and the conflict inside themselves does that child know how to emotionally regulate does that child know how to self-soothe without disconnecting from their caregivers without feeling mm -hmm. that it is a personal attack is that child ready for it and many of us did not get those lessons. It did start at yeah. home. And so we grow up into fully functional adults with the emotional um, health of a three-year-old that's hypoglycemic. Yeah. And so I didn't get what I want. Hmm. And we pout about it. And it's like grow up. And that's that's just a plain statement of fact yeah. about the, the society that we live in. And that's okay. Like that's not a judgment call. 
because I've had plenty of areas in my life where I've had to examine my own immaturity, even very recently. Yeah. And my journey as a coach has been fraught. I've fucked up plenty of times. And when I fucked up with the client and I've realized it, I say it. I say, I'm so sorry. I did fuck up with you and I'm going to make this right. That's huge. Because so few I, trainers I'm gonna do make that. This and right. I think that's the problem. No, I can think of one example. Let me give you an example. Let's just go real vulnerable. Today. So um, about a year ago, my very special heart dog who passed away last December, she oh, was sorry. having her, she was having her third operation for breast cancer. And because of where we were living at the time, I had to travel about two hours to the coast to a special hospital. I had to take a hotel and I took three days at the coast with her to give her her operation and recover with her. And whilst we were doing that, I was working with clients from the hotel and I didn't realize it, but I had a client at the time who I'm still in contact with and we're still close. And actually they are coming to a clinic soon. Um, uh, a client was working with me on a very, very difficult horse of theirs, and they were engaging in what I would objectively call slightly problematic attitudes and practices towards this horse. Now, instead of being my usually emotionally healthy self, I just, I didn't let loose. I just said, this is not good what you're doing, and I don't like it, and it doesn't represent, I was just a bit too hard on them. And they felt really, they did tell me that it was unfair, and I recognized it. And I acknowledged it. I said, I'm sorry, I screwed up here with you and I'm going to make this right. I promise you I'm going to make this right. And this is why I, I screwed up and I'm sorry. It was not fair, but I'm also a human being and I make mistakes. Yeah. But that gets, the more I'm able to acknowledge those things and humbly admit when I went wrong, the more I'm able to do that, the less I actually go wrong because now you're yeah. self-aware enough to stop yourself before you do those things and so that's why it's emotional horsemanship because it's becoming aware of that emotional piece actually gives yeah. you that emotional maturity that you need to navigate these things and be around people that are doing different stuff now um that horse in, in question with that client that horse there was something toxic surrounding that horse because anyone who got around that horse their interpersonal relationships failed. That horse had represented multiple divorces and, <laughs> and, and personal problems. And um, my recommendation in the end was that I didn't want to be involved with this horse because also the person I was working with wasn't the owner of the horse. They were the trainer of the horse. And I said, I'm uncomfortable being a third party. I'm being put in the middle mm -hmm. in a situation. So that was a learning for me too. Now I no longer make myself a third party. Yeah. I only deal direct with the owner now, you see. And so... Here's the lesson. Our conflicts are here to rupture, but then repair us better than we were before the rupture. That's what the conflicts are here to do. They are mistakes designed to elevate us. And that's what we need to actually lean into and learn how to navigate. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Like, and, and I think too, like it's, it's really cool hearing that, like how you handle clients and whatnot, because I think that for a lot of us growing up, we didn't have trainers that would ever acknowledge their mistakes and they mm. were really blamey and harsh. Um, like for example, growing up with my trainers that I had as a kid, I started riding at four years old. So I was young and I distinctly remember throughout my childhood, 
when I ran into problems with horses who were acting up, there were definitely times where my trainer would be like, you're going to teach my horse bad habits. This is your fault. You need to do this and actually listen and like get this under control. Otherwise, you're going to teach my horse bad habits. And they took like my inability to handle the horse in that situation as like a choice on my part not to listen rather than a lack of ability and then created shame and blame that then made it very hard for me in the future to not get defensive when people shared conflicting opinions. And then the other thing too is like, I don't know very many trainers that I've like throughout my experience that I've actually trained with. There's a lot online that I talk to and like can mentor with and have disagreements with and talk to. And that's great. But there's been very few trainers that I've had that I've actually taken lessons from throughout my years as an equestrian where you can disagree with them or ask a question and actually have it be safe. Because a lot of trainers, if you do that, they get mad at you. And if if they don't know how to answer your question or if they feel wronged by your disagreement they then take it out on their students and I think that's part of why some people have such a hard time with the disagreement thing because they're used to trainers not allowing for like conversation between students and being treated um as inferior to the instructor rather than having it be a conversation because good teachers should be able to explain themselves and even if their student disagrees with them they should be confident enough in their beliefs that they can speak to their student and have that conversation without it being a dictatorship basically where it's like I'm I'm the voice of reason you don't get to talk to me um and for me it took me a long time to undo all of that conditioning because I'd been conditioned to not speak up to my trainer at all and I'd also been put in so many situations where I was told to do things that I felt were wrong in my heart and I wasn't comfortable with but then if I didn't act on them and do them right away I would be yelled at and shamed in front of the entire lesson group in front of shows um, in the warm-up ring so I learned to just like follow instructions and to not allow my opinion or my feelings to color what I actually did because if I took too long to do something I'd get in trouble for it and what that taught me was to be really reactionary towards horses in training and then also hyper defensive where I viewed everything through a negative lens where if someone commented on my post or something and was like and they disagreed with me I'd take it as like a personal attack on myself rather than something that's separate from myself and just someone sharing their opinion and Mm. I think that the early conditioning was really bad for that because I also have ADHD, which doesn't help. So emotional regulation was already difficult for me. But basically what I like how I feel with like my conditioning growing up as a rider is my trainers basically handed bad emotional skills to me on a silver platter because I was allowed to take out my frustration on horses. And as I'm sure you know, that's highly reinforcing, especially when you're a child that's already struggling and going through hard things. So it led to a lot of violence that took a lot of time to unpack and stop doing because it was such an ingrained habit. And it was something where for a lot of it, without realizing it, I was probably in a state of learned helplessness because in the beginning I did not want to do these things, but I was made to do it. And also when you're surrounded by adults who are all doing the same thing and you're the child, you just go, Oh, I guess like this is how everyone does it. And it becomes an echo chamber where you don't really get to see good behaviors modeled. Um, And back then, social media was not at all what it is now. So even when I was like on the internet by myself, I couldn't find the information that is so accessible now to like offer alternatives to what was going on. 
Um, and it was a really unhealthy and toxic environment. And honestly, I think that what I learned back then, it impacted how I behaved and reacted to situations, even in situations that had absolutely nothing to do with horses, like mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships with friends. It changed how I responded to teachers. And it, it's 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 interesting to see how much all that stuff impacts people into adulthood, because a lot of times we don't consider how our early upbringing actually forms who we are as adults and like our triggers because there's certain triggers that you might have as an adult that you won't necessarily even remember where it initially stems from um and i think that it, it's it's really cool hearing you talk about your clients and say like that you can tell them that you've made mistakes because that's not something that a lot of people have modeled to them like my trainers tried to portray themselves as infallible and even like when they made mistakes or something went wrong they were more likely to blame the horse or myself or some other situation than themselves. Like, I don't remember any time I've ever actually heard, like, my early role models hold themselves accountable and go, I did that wrong or, like, my timing was poor. And if they had done that, it would have also modeled the idea that, like, making mistakes is okay and that it's a part of learning. And even these people who are professionals and experts can make mistakes. Um but I was taught that mistakes were bad and something to be ashamed of. So then it made me want to hide my mistakes rather than highlight them. And in my reconditioning process of like growing up and changing how I did things, it's been super freeing to be able to admit when I'm making mistakes because suddenly that takes away all of the power that people would otherwise hold over you to point out your mistakes and be like, you suck. You, you did this, that, and this, and the other thing. Um, and just like try to shame you for them. But if you're aware that they happened and you can acknowledge them, suddenly people don't have the same power in trying to shame you for any mistakes you made and try to use it to make you feel inferior. Um, so it's really, it's really nice to hear about trainers that actually do that because I think that it helps people in more situations than what they would think, like outside the horse world and otherwise, because it it's just like when you're when you feel ashamed of yourself for making any mistake especially with how steep the learning curve is with horses like it's impossible to not make mistakes even once you know better like there's just so many variables that can lead you to not having something go how you planned um and before when stuff didn't go as planned i would lose the plot and get frustrated and stressed and then that frustration could then get redirected at the horse or people around me um and giving up that kind of control and just kind of letting things be and not being so fixated on like this has to happen this way and there can't be mistakes. And if there is a mistake, blame the horse because they caused it. It's made training so much more fun for me because I didn't even realize how much anger and like resentment and frustration I held towards horses and horse training until I started unpacking all of that wow. and doing things differently. And it was just such a toxic environment. Like, honestly, growing up in show is. barns, it, it was horrible. <laughs> it still is. Yeah. And here's the thing. No hate, heat, or judgment to those professionals either. This is what I'm here to do as far as I'm concerned. I'm here to bring emotional intelligence into horsemanship. That's what I want to do. And to create emotionally balanced horses who can kind of do anything with their their humans. I'm here to serve the private horse owner or the recreational equestrian primarily. I'll work with anyone and I don't mind which culture of equestrianism you come from. 
I don't mind if you do horseback archery, if you've got a non-ridden Shetland pony, or if you're a hunter jumper, I don't care. Well, I do care very much. I welcome any type of person, but priority boarding is my recreational horse owners because they are the most underserved and yet the most populous and fastest growing community that we have. I'm here to break the illusion. I'm here to apologize to people who never got an apology they deserved. And I'm here to try and walk my talk and be a better, healthier representation of what an equestrian performance coach can be. Now, no heed or judgment to those problematic professionals, apart from a very small minority who are maybe genuinely evil, only a very small minority would be genuinely lost causes who are evil persons whom even in the right conditions would still choose the wrong thing to do. I believe, maybe I'm an idealist, but I believe that that's a very small percentage. I believe most of the problematic coaches and uh, instructors we know of our past did not have the luxury to admit when they went wrong because that was their job security. They were overworked, underpaid, overextended, understaffed, usually overhorsed, underclienteded, yeah, under resourced, and overstocked. One hundred percent. What is that professional supposed to do? They are stuck like peanut yeah. butter between two oppressive slices of bread. Horses on the right, clients on the left. And so they resent both of them, the horse and the client. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine what that would be like. I've worked with people closely, intimately with people who both somewhat resented their horses on some level and resented their clientele despite how professional they were. And that incongruence was something I just can't do. My body won't let me do that. And so I can only do it congruently. And so I read about something, I can't remember what his name was. He He's a therapist and he talks about defensive practitioners and non-defensive practitioners. Defensive practitioners see their clientele or their quote unquote patients, if you're a therapist or their clients as liabilities that you need to defend yourself from and withhold yourself from. And then the non-defensive practitioners are open, honest, and bring their own personality into the equation and support, coach, teach, guide people from a place of true authenticity and openness, which means admitting when you're wrong, which means admitting who you are, which means being personal. Sometimes I have a couple of clients who have my direct phone number and will send me WhatsApps of, hey, me and my horse did this thing today. Now, they are very careful not to violate a boundary too much. and if I don't want to reply to something, I just don't, you know, so I've got to set boundaries too. Um, but I believe I'm a non-defensive practitioner because my nervous system is happier that way. And I'm able to sleep better at night. I'm able to have better digestion. I'm able to uh, enjoy my life more, but also that's a position of privilege and luxury to be in that kind of place. But I have structured my life and my business around that as a center. So that was the choice I made. This is how I want to teach. This is how I want to deliver. 
this is how I want to train horses. The structure of my business needs to match that. I'm not going to choose a mm-hmm. business structure and then make the my business, which is the horse, that's my product, is the horse yeah. and the human, right? My product is the horse and the human. I'm not going to make that now fit this other industrial complex that's not mine. Yeah. So how does that look like? It means that I deliver very few um, – I actually deliver hardly any casual services in person. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. I either work with people in person over a long period of time or at a clinic. And clinics are an intensive environment where I'm there for two days, many hours of the day, and we're all working together and they get materials prior to the clinic that prepare them for the clinic, etc. So the decision was to go deep with people and not to go shallow with people. That's the decision I've made. And to work with my own private horses and not train for the public anymore and to demonstrate with my own horses because that makes me feel good. And if I feel good, I can train people from a place of happiness and abundance and joy. Nothing worse than being a horse riding instructor that doesn't have a horse or never rides your own horses Yeah. or being, being a farrier or a trimmer whose own horse's feet look like shit. That's just, um hypocrisy so i won't be a walking hypocrite i just won't i've got to be able to walk my own talk and demonstrate and say look here's my dream trail horse here's my classical arena horse here's my cult and here's my rescue horse and i can demonstrate my my walk my talk with them and my clients are like me they don't work with horses in the public My clients Mm -hmm. have their own horses and they need to know what it is like to formulate those long-term bonds with their horses. And training a horse for a long-term bond is very, very different than doing a 30, 60, 90-day program to do a spring tune-up. Very different. That instructor, that trainer has to be very technically skilled but emotionally distant from that horse. And so they give back to their clients – a technically skilled horse that is emotionally distant. And then those clients say, well, my horse can do it, but I want that connection. And then they call the connection trainer. Hello, I'm over here. Right. And so, and then I say, well, the methods that you were using are designed for a 30, 60, 90 day program success, but may or may not with that exact lens succeed long-term. I'm going to be controversial for a second. Let me go there. For example, some forms, not all, some forms of positive reinforcement training done on some horses, not all, in some contexts, not all, are designed to give you a rapid accumulation of behavioral change over a short period of time. But after that short period of time, their long-term efficacy plateaus, and in some cases, even devolves that is not my opinion that is the science of operant conditioning some forms of operant conditioning i speak specifically of a fixed ratio reinforcement schedule right particularly when it's done on emotionally volatile animals it will give you rapid behavioral change within a three-month period and then it plateaus and so for that owner if they've got a rescue horse, for example, who just can't be handled. Yeah, you get in there and you use best practices, R plus, 
to get that horse behaviorally triaged. They've gone to the emergency ward. They're bleeding out behaviorally, right? They can't breathe. They're bleeding out. They need antibiotics. You get them with R plus from A to Z through emergency as quickly as possible and as, as pressure-free as possible within three months. After that three months, once the horse is catching, leading, uh, not aggressive, feels safe with you, etc. Once the emergency is over, enter stage left, the long-term training techniques, which are much more gentle in nature. They are, they require that you are able to acknowledge that these techniques build in the horse's feedback in the technique. Mm -hmm. And that feedback looks like you not getting the behavior that you want. Let me say that again. Long-term techniques, long-term training techniques designed to give you a change, not next week, not next month. They are designed to give you a result in three or four years time. Those Mm -hmm. techniques build into themselves the ability of the horse to give you a feedback, which looks like you're not getting what you want. And if you're not emotionally mature enough to handle it, it feels like a failure. But what's happening is you now have a two-way street where the horse says, that's an interesting thing to say. Well, this is what I think about it. And then you say, well, thank you for sharing that with me. Can you think about this? And now you have that long-term exchange. So for example, let me be really clear. Let us look at best practices R plus as um, a steamroller. It's designed to roll flat a new road, right? Big, heavy machinery, extremely powerful, extremely specific, very, very good for its job. But if you've got a wrinkled shirt, you don't use a steamroller to iron your shirt. You use a more gentle tool. You use a hand iron. And maybe if it's a synthetic shirt, you don't use it on its hottest setting. You use it on its lowest setting. And so Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in introducing more gentle, less invasive, neurologically and behaviorally invasive, less invasive training techniques to the recreational horse person because, A, they are usually very technically simple to implement. You don't need 20 years of experience to be a Nuno Oliveira dressage schoolmaster or Brent Brander up someone with a stick over your shoulder to be able to do them well. You can be... Harriet the hacker working a nine to five and seeing your horse 7.35 p.m. until 8.35 p.m. before rushing home to your neglected husband and children, right? You can be that person and use this technique that will give you long-term changes within three or four years' time with very little skill, very little practice, and very Mm -hmm. little time on your hands. That's what I'm interested in serving. That will still give you that emotional rapport with the horse. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I wake up every morning to do and to try and deliver it to people trying most of the time not to be an asshole. Though I fail sometimes as well. I'm still a human being. Well, and it can be hard too with the amount of voices that you hear online and like when you have a bad day and whatnot, but that that's so cool. And I think that's what a lot of horse people get stuck on is like, they all want well not all of them i'm not going to generalize to that degree many of them want immediacy in training like which is why like training gadgets and certain types of harsher bits are so popular like people want to fix the problem right now um and for a time it might work where you can put on a harsher bit and you can jump your horse over large courses and they don't run off on you 
but what they don't necessarily realize is that it always fails at some time um with with anything too like even outside of training like hoof care for example you can put a band-aid fix on it and it'll work for a time but then when you're screwed you're screwed like we band-aid fixed my rescue horse's feet for a number of years and because of how much it damaged his feet he had to have two years off to completely rehab his feet and he Mm. was so soured that i had to counter condition everything that he used to do because he had such a negative association with it so it took longer um and if i'd gone about it in the more holistic approach where you're looking for long-term change over a lengthier period of time but it's lasting change and it's change that sticks even if you're not working with your horse all the time right then it takes longer initially but then it starts to snowball and then once you're there you're there um and unfortunately that it seems to be one of those things where you where a lot of people need to make the mistake first before they recognize the other path and Mm -hmm. once you do make the mistakes it's frustrating to look back and go wow like you actually would have been further ahead if you started doing the little things and like building the foundation like like if you're building a house you got to make sure Mm. it has a good foundation if the foundation isn't there you could build a really nice house but it's not going to last very long and it could collapse in a windstorm um and a lot of people forget about that foundation yeah some of these horses do behaviorally collapse in a windstorm oh yeah say that right they hit a wall and then you're like you're screwed because it's like wait and once they hit that wall it's always harder to fix something that's broken like that than it is to Mm. not break it in the first place um and it's so frustrating to realize but it's it's one of those things where people but so many trainers will promise those quick fixes and they will tell like they they will offer the 30 60 90 day program that's easier to sell it's easier to sell it's easier to sell so i understand that too and we can adopt a little bit of that mentality and making things uh intellectually accessible to people yeah i've been called so i've been called ableist because my um my posts on facebook are incomprehensible to someone with dyslexia i actually had someone write me on my personal phone to call me able ableist because their dyslexic husband couldn't read my posts and said you should be doing your content in this format this format and this format And in my head, I thought, where does this person get out thinking that they have the right to demand how I should be delivering my services? They have no idea that I'm not able to do video or audio content because where I was living didn't have a strong enough internet connection to facilitate Mm -hmm. it. Writing was the only way I could actually put my content out in the world for the last three years. Only way. So who's ableist, right? So well, and if writing's I, your chosen medium too, that's the other well, thing. Is it's, like it's it's, it's not necessarily yeah. my chosen medium. It's the medium that I was able to. Yeah, use. I've offended the um, paragliding instructor community based on my interview with Warwick Schiller. Isn't that amazing? I had someone write <laughs> to me and I had someone write to me and say, when you were talking with Warwick Schiller and you asked the question um, about the ice baths, I asked a question like. What does it feel like when you have an ice bath? Is it the same sort of adrenaline rush that people who do extreme sports, for example, base jumping, feel? I used the example base jumping. I didn't mention paragliding. I mentioned extreme sports and adrenaline. I had someone from the paragliding instructor community who represent what they thought. They felt targeted and attacked as an quote-unquote extreme sport that actually 
excuse me, Lockie, but when you paraglide, there's no adrenaline. It's only pure serotonin and relaxation. So thank you for coming for my TED talk. And we oh. thank you not to misrepresent the paragliding instructor community. And I was just about ready to flip my table and throw my computer out. The yeah, that is like, so weird. I, I kind of did tell this person that you can go fuck yourself. I did kind of tell them that. Um, and I'm like, I'm so, well, I kind of said, thank you so much. I didn't know that I had offended the paragliding instructor community. Um, maybe you were That's joking. Crazy. Um, but, you know, I can't please everyone. So you're going to walk into it no yeah. matter what you do as a professional. And it's wild out there. And what I've learned about people, people love, love to pick at things. Give them a perfect Swiss watch. Perfect. It's perfect. You don't need to do anything except put it on and wear it. And you wear it every day for your life. You replace the battery once every 10 years. And then when you die, you give it to your son or your daughter. And then they carry on the legacy of this beautiful Swiss watch. Someone will take something that is perfect and take it apart just so that they can have a problem putting it back together again. And then they can tell the story about how difficult it was to put it all back together again. Oh, my God, let me tell you. Here's my story. Let me tell you my story. This is my story. And people literally get off. They get jacked on telling their story. So here's the thing. Are we prepared to let go of the drama that enslaves us? I mm -hmm. have had a very exciting life. It has been too exciting for me so far. And I'm desperate to have a boring life in the beautiful Galician countryside delivering civilized services to beautiful people and their horses. That's what I'm looking forward to over the next 20 years of my life. And so I've made a conscious decision to not play into the drama, but at the same time, not be white bread and toast either, that I'm allowed to have two things true at the same time. I'm allowed to have a strong voice that speaks straight to a truth and talks about subjects that people don't necessarily want to talk about. I'm allowed to do that. And I'm allowed to not want to be part of the drama. So mm -hmm. that contract includes if you're coming onto my platform to engage in difficult discussions or debates, there is a code of conduct. Don't be an asshole. Mind your manners. And let's talk about it. But if you come on there with the intention to be hostile, and it is my job to decide what is hostile in my house, mm -hmm. right? That's my job. Um, you get three chances and then you're out. I will invite you to change your tone. Um, and if you don't, then you're out. And that's really difficult for people because there are not many people who are conversing in that way. But I've made that decision mm -hmm. so that I can continue to create safe places for people who are trying to find their voice, who are trying to take a seat at the table, who are trying to contribute in a positive way, and who don't because they're being drowned out by brutalists who come to the table louder, they come to the table sooner, and they come to the table uglier. Well, mm -hmm. I don't play ugly on my page. I play difficult, but I don't play mm -hmm. ugly. So, um, and I have no problem getting rid of someone from my platform. No problem yeah. whatsoever. No problem whatsoever. That's not to censor you because I leave plenty of commentary there that questions what I do. But they yeah. question respectfully. They question in a sense of curiosity and with the spirit of discovery, mutual mm -hmm. discovery. So we need to change um, on so many different formats. But people love to enslave themselves in a storyline and a drama 
I've been in lessons with yeah. people where someone, this is a true story. I was teaching a lesson last year. I won't say where, and I deeply respect this person I speak of. And I was like, okay, so what would you like help with? They had already attended the clinic and then they wanted a lesson with one of their other horses. So this horse, he's kind of like a middle-aged man, kind of a bit of a chauvinist, doesn't really mm. want to work with us girls on girly stuff like dressage. Mm. He kind of slops about. He's kind of heavy. Then he can be spooky for no reason and dick around in the corner. And as they were talking, this horse looked at me. And they kept talking. They were sitting on him. This horse looked at me, and I looked at him in the eye. And while they were talking, I was just looking at him. And he looked at me. And he walked straight up, and he put his head in my chest, and he just took a deep sigh. Aww. That's so And cute. I went, oh, I was like, buddy, I get it. They're projecting. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. And I asked them to start riding. And as soon as they turned in, they turned in too abruptly. And he was like, shit, fuck, to the rain. Like, oh, God, where are we going now? What's happening yeah. next? What position do you want me in? This one? Is this? Is yeah. this it? Please don't correct me. I can't handle being corrected so much, you know? And so that's where we started the lesson. And then they kept, every time I get gay feedback, they kept countering my feedback with this consistent storyline, which wasn't congruent with the extremely compliant horse that I was seeing. And mm -hmm. I allowed them to express that, not a problem. But when they were repeating themselves again and again, like a behavioral stereotypy, the same way I would interrupt a horse that was fence swaying or wind sucking. I had to interrupt the client and say, can I convince you to let go of that story you're telling yourself and just try and implement the correction I'm giving you? Just try mm -hmm. it. Now, one thing the problematic instructors got right was that there is a time and a place to sit down, shut up and listen and try and implement correction. There is absolutely a time and a place for that as a student that to be respectful to your teacher to implement what they're giving you. I had a military style training as a professional classical ballet dancer, problematic military style training. My school in Switzerland is currently under a national investigation into allegations of child abuse. And I gave an eight hour deposition to a Swiss oh law gosh. firm about the matter. So I know something about problematic high performance coaching. I know quite a mm -hmm. bit about it. I've seen um, friends of mine become drug addicts, prostitutes, suicide watch um, because of the performance coaching that they were in. I've seen that happen. So I know something about the dangers of being a dictator, but there is a time when as a student, your job is to be neutral, be a vessel to receive information and try to implement the feedback in a pure way. That doesn't mean you're making a life contract for a billion years like a Scientologist. Mm -hmm. You're not signing your life away, yeah. right? You're not signing your life away to that. It means that for this moment, give it your best shot. As an Australian would say, give it a fair go. He would say, mm -hmm. give it a fair go. Really try it. Run with it. I was taking lessons from a dressage master who spent 15 years at the Nuno Oliveira stud in Lisbon, in Portugal. Cool. He was pre helping prepare horses there. And I was studying with him. This is what people don't know about me, that I have very private classical writing ambitions and biomechanical knowledge that I make a choice not to talk about. But 
I was studying with him. And every time he said something that was framed through the lens of problematic dominance theory, I immediately took that information, put it through my dominance theory filter in my brain, which took out the dominance theory, separated, isolated, and identified the jewels of information that he was giving that he was genuinely attempting to augment for me as a highly kinesthetic and visual person ex-dancer. He was trying to really coach me at a personal level. And then filter out the dominance theory, filter out the rubbish, find the jewels, and immediately mm -hmm. implement it into a change for the horse. And this was happening at a lightning speed. Now, I learned this from my dance career because usually the choreographer at the front of the room is somewhere on the spectrum from garden variety, uh, unpleasant next door neighbor, all the way to full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. They will be somewhere on that spectrum mm -hmm. most of the time, the <gasps> choreographer or the director at the front of the room, somewhere on that spectrum. And yet your job was to be living, breathing materials of an art form. I am mm -hmm. a piece of paint and they are painting with me. And my job is to both express myself as that material, be the color I'm supposed to be, be the shape, be the form, be the movement, but at the same time, make it impersonal, but also in a way that people can digest personally. So two truths at the same time, being able yeah. to take that information, digest it through my body and then immediately implement. And sometimes I was not very good at it as a dancer. I'll be really real with you because when someone's just coming at you and coming at you and coming at you, there's only so much you can take. Yeah. But compared to the dance industry, you horse people are a walk in the park. Can I tell you? <gasps> can I tell you? You're a, this is a walk in the park compared to what a dancer deals with on a daily basis. Because I was both the horse and the riding student at the same yeah. time. I felt both those dualities. I was the creature of movement, supposed to perform, not allowed to speak back, doing difficult things. And I was also the student who was trying to intellectually make it happen as well and remember. Mm -hmm. So, yes, if your kids want to ride horses, send them to dance lessons. It'll help tremendously. That's such a cool perspective. Yeah. I, I wish I did more dance stuff because it also well, you don't would be have nice to, to be have a dancer. rhythm. You don't have to be a dancer. And I, I did just publish my last online course called Body Instrument Method, which distilled a lot of these overarching qualities, themes, and lessons learned from that career and developed it into a method of training an equestrian at a physical level, but still connected with emotional intelligence. So it's connecting emotional intelligence, body conditioning, movement training for an equestrian in a modern pro-movement science format. So I'm not teaching people correct and incorrect ways to move because that biomechanical model has been debunked, very thoroughly debunked, yet it's still prevalent within the equestrian industry. We're, we need another 30 years for that to have a renaissance. But the yeah. human kinesthesiologists are moving away from models of biomechanical training that teach correct and incorrect. We're now moving into much more movement positive concepts where there's no such thing as a bad position or movement except the one you're stuck in or the one that mm. explicitly hurts you. And so other than that, all movement is just movement except the movement that you're stuck in. So with horses, any position is a good position 
when they move on the ground, when someone is on the back, the only prerequisite is that the thoracic spine is lifting and the dorsal spinous processes remain open at all times. Other than that, any other posture has the potential to hurt or not hurt that horse. And the difference mm -hmm. is cumulative microtrauma. And the more you restrict that horse down into one unique posture and make them work there, the more you expose them to cumulative microtrauma, which means the more other postures hurt. And then you create a self-fulfilling cycle where the horse can only move in one way without hurting themselves. So that's not yeah. what I teach. So I've done that, but for the person. So teaching them how to ride a spook, how to be adaptable to trail riding in different conditions, or maybe your arena's got a bit of a dip in a corner, or maybe mm -hmm. you're riding an awkward horse, but you need to be balanced anyway, or maybe the saddle's not right for you, but you need to find yourself anyway. Maybe yeah. you wanna learn how to communicate with your body language and groundwork better. Maybe you need help learning how to lift feed sacks with a better dynamic yeah. and with less strength. So that's the course I've just published that kind of took all of that dancing stuff and made it about the body without teaching cool. you like dance, without teaching you dance. Because yeah. I didn't want to make it about that. That's so cool. Yeah, mm. that's really interesting. And I think like that it's cool to teach people a lot of different ways to do things. Because I think that's one of the problems too with a lot of modern horse training is that Trainers will tell you what to do, but they don't really show you how to like problem solve and think for yourself and like right. learn how to create different solutions, which then makes people much more reliant on being in lessons all the time um, and constantly getting assistance. Whereas if they were given the tools to kind of start to problem solve on their own, they wouldn't necessarily be as reliant on constant supervision um, right. which seems to be a total thing in the in the show world where it's like you take lessons all the time and you you pay for your trainer to be there with with you for the whole weekend at a show which isn't necessarily a bad thing like those things can both be great but if the student doesn't know how to problem solve without their trainer are they really learning how to apply things in the way that they should because they're reliant on someone telling them what to do in the moment to try to solve a certain issue rather than being able to look in their head and kind of go, how should I go about handling this? And it's a safety thing too, because if the coach isn't there and you have a problem with your horse where it's actually dangerous, um, people need the tools to know how to handle that safely. Um, right. And I think that's interesting. Cause yeah, like growing up, I wasn't, I didn't even know anything about learning theory or operant conditioning until I was like studying in school myself. And it wasn't like, I was never actually explained to, by any trainer how what I was doing actually worked. Um, mm. And the understanding of how it works changes how you apply it and also makes your timing better. And um helps a lot with like the with problem solving and troubleshooting issues um, what you're so describing I, is technique yeah. yeah what you're describing is having technique yeah period like most people are taught to be a puppet on their horse but not how to have technique as a horse Precisely. person and technique is about having a quality process that you can replicate over and over again, no matter the outcome conditions or result. Yeah. So to gain inspiration as an equestrian coach, I don't study other equestrian coach coaches. I know that's a shady thing to say, but when you see me on um, my days off and I'm doing personal research into methods or looking into ways to improve how I coach people, because 
if you spend all of your time as a coach improving your skill set, you might not, you might have all of those skills yourself, but you might have absolutely no ability to actually implement those in a lesson with a person. So I, I believe it's really good for every equestrian professional at some point to pause your skill acquisition journey, just pause, solidify what you've got and then learn Mm -hmm. how to teach what you've got. And once you're successfully teaching what you've got, then develop more skills or go back and refine. Yes. Or go to the next level, go deeper. But when I'm looking into days when I'm improving how I coach, there are a couple of people I watch and they have nothing to do with horses. Um, I won't reveal all of my sources, but one of them is a classical opera singer by the name of Joyce D. Donato. She's a mezzo-soprano. She's American. And she teaches these masterclasses all over the world at like Carnegie Hall, for example. The way she coaches people will blow your mind. She'll go into these long diatribes about sound and placement of sound and connect it to the the liturgy of the piece and the language and the notes. And she knows the characters of each of the composers. And I mean, it just, just blows your mind. And the way she can change how our voice sounds through technique. And she knows the Mm -hmm. distinction between technique and talent. You can have talent. Talent is the spark that lights the flame, but the flame is technique. And she says, technique is having a quality process. Don't go for the result. Don't reach for the note. Because if you go to punch out the note, you'll miss the process. You'll get a shitty note or Mm -hmm. it's luck. You'll get the note seven times out of 10, and then you won't get it three. If you want to get it every time and have it reliable and be able to fly across the world, get off a plane and go perform that night on stage with a clean voice, then you need to have technique. And that's how I am with, with anything I do. So I'm a performance coach really quite seriously. And I also learned from uh, a mentor in Australia, long may she rest. I've spoken about her a lot in podcasts and she's on my website, but to have that quality process and to know your process and then the result will be what it is. So with a horse, you have your process. That's your technique. You do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. Clicker trainers are the best at teaching process, really, truly. If every equestrian professional, no matter your methodology of training, could implement the same excellent understanding of process that a clicker trainer could, even if you're not clicker training, we -hmm. would do a lot better in ourselves as educators. So they have a process they follow, and then the result is up to the horse. What they get, and so you're building in consent. You're building in self-expression by not micromanaging the result or wrenching the result out of something. Say, I go process, 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 horse, what do you say? And you wait for the echo of the process to return to you out of the horse. You go, "Mm, okay, maybe a little to the left. You go back again, process, 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 look at it. How are we going? Mm, Try again. Process, 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 try again. So when I was learning to dance, I learned this when I was eight years old in a simple way. I had the teacher come up to me and he had a water bottle, looked something like this. He said, hold it. He was very funny. He said, hold out your hand, held out my hand. He put the water bottle on my hand and then it fell off my hand. And he looked at me and he slacked my hand and he picked up the water bottle and he (sighs) said, do that again. And he put it on my hand and it fell. He says, why is it falling? He said, it's not balanced. He said, exactly. So what are you going to do about it? Nothing. 
And he, I'm like, no. He's like, okay, so which way is it falling? I said, it's falling to the left. He said, so put it more to the right. Try it again. It fell to the right this time. He said, you overcorrected. Try again. And so he was teaching you the fundamentals of process, cool. how to have technique to a child. Child, children understand this. And so when you're trying something with the horse, you try something and you get a result. And you say, well, what did work and what overworked? What worked too much? What went too far? How can we bring it back? Or how can we push it the other way? So instead of training being this life or death scenario, I've got to get the right answer the first time. It's now an improvisation. It's now a conversation. It's now this beautiful jazz riff that you play together with the horse and explore unless the horse is in emergency behaviorally, mm -hmm. highly shut down, highly anxious, highly aggressive. These scenarios are emergencies for those horses and you need to implement immediately and get results immediately. Yeah. But after that, it should be an experimentation and an improvisation, like a contact improvisation. I used to do a lot mm -hmm. of contemporary dance contact improvisation and I loved it. No wrong answers. Sometimes you would fall on your ass and then you would learn how mm. to fall. You would learn how to fall and go into the, the ground. And as soon as you fell, make it look like something that wasn't a mistake. Cool. And so then mistakes become an opportunity. Yeah. You know? A lesson. Yeah. That's and when so you cool. adopt this with horses, can I tell you, you wake up in the morning and you feel so free as a horse person. Like I, I've got a lot of work to do as a horse person, but Truly, Shelby, I feel so fucking free every single day. Yeah. Especially with my horses, especially with my horses and in my business. And I wish more people could have just a taste of that because as soon as you get a taste of that, you just don't want anything else again. You just want to be free of all of it. Mm -hmm. And it makes it so much more enjoyable too because oh, yeah. I used to be really pro riding and like I needed to ride all the time and I hated doing groundwork. Um, but when I started to learn more about the process, now I really like doing groundwork and I probably do more groundwork than riding right now. Um, yeah. but I actually enjoy it. And before I didn't, I wasn't enjoying myself. I wasn't having fun and neither were my horses. Mm. And imagine if your riding felt like your groundwork feels. Yeah, That it's exactly. a true experimentation. So let me describe to you what a ride might be like with one of my horses. So with Sanson, who's been with me the longest. There'll be times when I'm riding him, for example, if I'm riding him on the rail as a context, he knows that when we're on the rail, we're kind of doing what Lockie wants to do, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, Sansa needs to defer to me and accommodate my wishes. So he's, he's there and he's listening, very good boy, what would you like? Because he's found that when he does that, when we're on the rail, I always bring positive meaning and positive process to him. I make something more comfortable. I make something more powerful. I make something more interesting. I engage him. Then there'll be times when I'll take him off the rail and I'll bring him in the center and I'll start trotting him in loose circles. And I kind of give the reins to him. And then I sort of sit quiet and I just say one bridge cue, which is my word, ready. And he goes, right, my turn. It's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. He's like, right, I got a bit of this. And he throws in a combo. Aww. And he goes, I got a bit of this and he throws in another combo and then sometimes he'll be riding in a trot in a brace and i'm trying to correct the brace i'm like why are you braced there why are you give me that shoulder put that shoulder back and he's like he consistently holds the brace he's like nope i'm bracing because i've got a great idea Lockie. you're gonna love it and then as soon as i stop trying to correct his brace 
he'll give me a lavad or a beautiful uphill canter transition because he was preparing for something that was his idea, not mine. And he shared that with me completely in the spirit of curiosity and totally safe, totally safe and totally pro-social. And it just makes me laugh. I'll be up there giggling like a five-year-old and I'll say, okay, that was really good. And he gets really excited. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now we're going to go back to the rail. And he's like, oh, but I want to keep partying. And I said, no, we're going back to the rail. We're going to be grandma's horse now. Let me have it. Let me have it. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll defer. And then he'll actually simmer down and defer back to me. And so now it's this beautiful interplay of when I've got the reins, literally and figuratively, and when he does, because I'm trying to walk my talk where I'm striking an emotionally balanced perspective. Yeah. As you know, many of our colleagues in the ethical training community have thrown away their own consent and autonomy in their relationship with their horse in the journey of trying to give their horse autonomy. They no longer have any say in the training whatsoever. It's all about yeah. the horse, right? And I want to practice both. There needs to be yeah. times when I say to the horse, no, shut up, sit down, listen. This is what needs to happen now. And it yeah. needs to happen for a reason. And there are times when the horse says, shut up, Lockie, listen to me now. <laughs> and I go, yeah. okay. And I don't be threatened by that. It's such a joyful interaction when you get to that place with the horse. Not all oh, horses so can nice. get there. Not all horses can get there, but um, yeah, it's a nice, no. it's a nice process. It's a nice journey. No, it really is. And I found that too, like what swap, swapping over to listening more. I think the hardest thing about committing to doing that initially was that since I'd used such forceful methods initially, like my horses didn't want to work with me um, wow. in the beginning. So I had to retrain the process to actually get them invested. Cause honestly, even with food rewards, my rescue horse Milo, he would leave during the training session. Like if we were doing, liberty, he'd be like, see ya. And it was because in the past, like he hadn't had the option to leave. And the hardest thing for me to do in that scenario was to let him leave because I had it drilled mm. into my head to make the horse do it. Don't let them get away with it. And I really, really, really wanted to make him work with me. Um, but that was almost a prerequisite to kind of move forward and start to develop the relationship that we have now was allowing him to leave. And now that I've done that, like he chooses to work with me more often than not. Like I can do Liberty work in a grass field with him. Um, and he'll choose to work with me over eating the grass, mm. which I like, but the prerequisite for that was allowing, allowing him, to, him leave. to leave. So I have and, a story about yeah. that. I have a, I have a rescue horse named Caleb who came to me very aggressive. I believe he was oxygen deprived at birth. Doesn't speak horse very well. We know he had a lot of deprivation in his life, both uh, in his environment and in food. And, um, very difficult horse to work with. Never quite met a horse like him. Everyone who meets him, they come thinking Sanson's the hero or Sereno's super interesting. And they meet my little scrawny rescue pony, Caleb, and they go, wow, this horse is really something. And when I was rehabilitating him and his rehabilitation's never ending, but at the early days, I was working him in an open space where I had a round pen, but the round pen was just created by like dressage things on the ground. So he could just step over and quit the chat. And I was the first person to use food reward with him as a behavioral triage thing. I remember the first time I rewarded him for leaving the conversation. He went, fuck you, Lockie, and he walked away. And I went, good, and gave him a food reward. I ran over, ran over to him to give yeah. him the food and went back to the middle of my round pen. 
And he stopped and looked at me and his eyes just went, like, what? <laughs> what? And then, you, then he licked and chewed and he was like, well, that fundamentally shifted my worldview on people. And he's like, hmm. And I was just standing there in the round pen. I'm like, I'm here if you want to talk. And he looked at me and he had water, food and shelter that he could go and choose. He looked at me. And I said, I was just talking to him in English, plain English. And I just said, you want to come back? He went, okay. And, he, and he, he came back. He's like, right, you've got my attention now. Now what are you going to do with it? Right? You've yeah. got my attention. Now what are you going to do with it? Now there are some people who would never reward the horse for doing, quote unquote, the wrong behavior, which is why I get my back up a little bit. Every time I see a behaviorist's Facebook post where they talk about how to get the wanted behavior, I'm like, we've got to move past that. We've got to move mm -hmm. past behavior. We've got to move past it. Anyway, but giving him what he wanted that one time after 20 years of never getting what he wanted blew his mind in all the good ways. And it gave me an open door to start discussing with him things that he would never let other people do. For example, trim his feet. I can now trim him at liberty in his field while I sit on a little hobbit camping stool with his foot in my lap. And he used to have to be held in a double bridle under the chin to be trimmed. Aww. And now I can just pop his foot in my lap and I trim him. Now, when I do it, he's like, hang on a minute, don't go so quick, you'll walk away. And I'll be like, that's okay. Are you ready? Do you understand what we're doing now? And then he understands and he goes, okay. And this horse, he, he is a representing of horses that aren't neural plastic because of their experiences. They, they don't have mental flexibility like many traumatized individuals don't. They can't think flexibly. Mm -hmm. They're black and white. This horse is so procedural that he actually will fist bump your hand every time he finishes a behavior, almost like a period on the end of a sentence. He'll go one Aww. and two and three, fist bump, ah, done. And one and two and three, fist bump, done. I did the second Aww. one. Good. And he goes one and two and three. Uh. And when I talk with animal communicators about him, they're like, he's so rigid, like an autistic person with, that they really like that, that regular. And so yeah, what, we're doing, yeah, what yeah. we're doing with him in training at the moment is so fascinating. We are mapping the topography in his behavior and emotional expression between explicit behavioral commands given where he knows what to do and how to do it and he understands the cue and giving him an ambiguous cue where he has points of reference to discern what I might be asking for but this, there's no specific outcome that he has to perform it's more conversational for example yeah. show me how you feel about that asking him questions rather than giving him commands and if we have too much asking him questions in the training he starts getting aggressive and he starts pushing back because mm -hmm. the neural plasticity it demands of him is mentally exhausting and then i go oh he just reached his threshold of how much he yeah. can actually think for himself he just reached his threshold on how much he can think right now we give him behavioral commands We'll actually put the halter back on. We will actually explicitly ask for A, B, and C. And then he goes, oh, the comfort zone. Oh, I don't have to think anymore. And then yeah. he goes, okay, great. And then, but too much of that creates inertia, you see? Yeah. So just before we get to inertia, we then pivot back 
into ambiguous cues and see how much he can do, how much he can give us feedback, how much he can contribute to the training rather than just obeying, right? It's fascinating mm -hmm. working with him in, in training at the moment. And we're doing this with no sweat, no dust flying and no high energy behaviors. And the primary person who is doing this with him is my adult beginner student who I'm teaching her how cool. to do it. She happens to be an occupational therapist. That's her job. So she has a lot of this skill set language in the human world, and we're kind of applying it in the horse world. But it's fascinating. And when I talk about going beyond behaviorism, I mean, this is it, you know, mm -hmm. in a really so tangible, cool. tangible, concrete way, creating training that stimulates thinking in the horse rather than behavior that stimulates yeah. self-expression and feedback and conversation in the training rather than what the trainer wants. You've got to be able to do both. Both yeah. are good, right? It's not to demonize behaviorism. It's just to go past it. Yeah, because obedience, you, you want more too. Like blind obedience isn't a good thing just because they're no. um, you, you want oh. self-expression. Blind obedience is a good thing appropriately placed. I used to yeah. say that there are only three things a horse, two things a horse has to do, which is be a horse and die one day. Now I say there are three things a horse has to do. Be a horse, die one day, and regularly have their feet trimmed whilst they are alive. So that's kind oh, of yeah. like a, that's, that's a non-negotiable, and there needs to be just straight-up yeah. obedience over that. You know, there are certain things that there must be obedience, and let's use best practices to get there. Yes. But not everything has to be about that, especially yeah. like selfish training goals, like yeah. being light on the forehand, you know, shoulder in is not like absolutely necessary. So you don't have to train it as if it is. Yes. Yeah. And like, yeah, the cooperative care stuff and like getting the, like needles, the feet right. trimming, having vets handle them, that stuff's way more important. And I think the the issue with horses who are too obedient comes to like ridden stuff more so how I think of it because if they stop deferring to their own opinion under saddle then they can't prevent lameness like if they're sore or if there's something going on or if you're on the trail and there's something dangerous up ahead if they never get the option then it endangers themselves yes and I know yeah. I've told too many stories but I have to tell this one to your listeners and to you Oh, yeah. My own horse, Sanson. I learned this the hard way, and I've never gone back after this this lesson. I learned this lesson so that you don't have to. Sanson and I, at the moment, live in the south of Spain in the mountains. We are relocating out of the mountains up to the north of Spain. But anyway, so the trails we had access to in the south of Spain are, imagine, 2,000-year-old Moorish goat tracks in, like, sage scrubland all rock with cool. drop-offs either side, right? So this is the kind of trail riding we have done. This mm -hmm. was maybe three and a half years ago. I was doing a trail that I've done with him before. I had done it with him the previous year, and it was very narrow at the end, right on a gorge on a precipice. It was very narrow, but it was a very ancient trail that had held for 2,000 years, and it was past like a, like a little ravine with a, like a creek running either side of it. And um, I hadn't done it all year, so it, it had gone through a winter. But before I rode it, I actually walked it and I cleared the trail with, with clippers. I went through the trail and I cleared it so I knew it was safe. So I'd walked it. 
And so I was riding and we were very close to home and we'd walked around the mountain. And the only way to get home was straight ahead or go back the way we had come by two hours, mm -hmm. the way we had come. Okay. So yeah. I was tired and I was ready to get home and he was ready to get home. And we were walking down the trail and the trail got narrower and narrower. And then it got so narrow and steep that I did need to dismount and lead him. So I was leading him and he's, he's a big draft horse, but he's very, very agile. He's a mountain boy. And we got to this one section of trail and he planted. And I went, come on, Sonny. And he planted and lifted his head back and pulled at me. And then I was like, right, here's my technique. And I started using non-escalating pressure and release to get him to come forward. And I maybe got a weight shift forward, but his feet wouldn't go further. And mm -hmm. I said, Sonny, we've done this before. Home is just there. And I've checked the trail. Everything's fine. And he said, no, Lockie, no. And he'd said yes to me all day. And for months, he'd been saying only mm -hmm. yes to me. And I said, no, we're going to do this. I use food reward, no, nothing. And then I lost my temper. And I said, Sani, you are going to do this now. Stop it. Follow. And he took a step and the trail went down the hill, just gave out oh. underneath him. His back leg slipped off the trail and he landed on his chest on the trail. Okay. And if he had fallen, he would have tumbled into a ravine where he was irretrievable. This is a true yeah. story. This is a oh true story. Yeah. And I screamed his name like a Hollywood movie, screamed his name. And he locked his eyes on me and he said, I'm not giving up today. And God bless his athleticism and his agility because he crawled up out of that. He had a couple of scratches on his back legs and that was it. Wow. Just, just skin wounds. But he was shaking like a leaf and so was I. And I begged him for forgiveness. See, I thought I had done my, my, my responsible thing. We had ridden it before. I had checked the trail, cleared the trail. And I thought he was just being obstinate. And yeah. my horse taught me that lesson that day. And I walked him home and I doctored his wounds and I begged him for forgiveness. I begged him. And I gave him two weeks off. I gave me two weeks off. And then we resumed. And since then, Anytime my horse gives me a hard no, that technique won't overcome, I defer to them every single time. Mm -hmm. That there's always a very, very good reason why it won't happen. And so when you said that building in your horse's consent is essential for them to prevent their lameness and their injury, 1,000 million percent, you never know how important that can be to your well-being and to theirs. The benefit mm -hmm. of riding a horse as opposed to a car or a machine is that they are thinking for themselves and can speak back and say, no, that's not safe. A car's not going to stop you from killing yourself, yeah. but a horse might if you earn it from If you them. let them, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's such a like scary story, but that's such scary. a cool example of like how tuned in they are to the environment because i think that's the other thing people struggle with we're not as present as horses are um mm -hmm. because we can't be because we're thinking of the past and the future way more but it means we miss things because mm -hmm. yeah there, there's been situations where i've put my horses into danger and i should have listened to them and mm -hmm. didn't and now that there's more communication there's also more trust on my end and also right. their end um when they do say that no but 
Yeah, that's a great, especially on trails, because it's a lot more unpredictable than arena riding. But in the ring, I think where people miss it is that, like, if their horse starts saying hard nose all of a sudden, it Mm. can be a behavioral issue. Like my gelding, Milo, for example, we went on a horrible trail ride where we got lost in the the mountains in British Columbia and went down a trail that was not suitable for horses, despite being labeled. Like, maybe if you had an endurance horse or a horse who's very used to it, but we had a three-year-old off the track thoroughbred, a four-year-old off the track thoroughbred, and my rescue gelding, who was wearing formahoof and that's not good on rocks. Um, right. So he wore his form of completely down. At one point, I literally had to just turn him loose because my mom's three-year-old off the track thoroughbred was struggling so much that I needed to go help her. So I turned him loose and he did the trail on his own and he was fantastic. But by the end of the ride, he was completely mentally fried. He piaffed the whole way to the trailer and mm-hmm. was grinding his teeth and was just like beside himself. And then after that, he stopped wanting to go forward under saddle. Like he refused and like you could be sitting there kicking. And like if I had gotten the whip, I literally could have sat there and probably whipped him and he still wouldn't have gone forward. Um right. And in the past, I would have treated that as like disobedience that he he needs to work. But at that point, I was like, okay, there's there's something wrong here. Mm. Um, so we took him to the vet. We got him scoped for ulcers. He had grade three ulcers. Started treating wow. that, and then he also had hoof issues from wearing the form of hoof down so badly. And he has very very thin soles. Um, mm. So wearing it down on rock, especially, I can't. I can only imagine how much pain he was in. Um, but that's part of why he's had to rehab for so long because I didn't listen to him and it was a situation Mm. where we were stuck on a mountain so I had to be like you have to do this like we because we couldn't we couldn't turn around the trails were too narrow to turn the horses around Um, and it was horrible but that was the lesson learned where it was like I could have gone back to my roots and pushed him harder like following that trail ride but I recognized after that trail ride I had expended his emotional piggy bank I'd taken it all I was probably in debt um Mm -hmm. and it's taken a long time to come back from that because I didn't listen to him sooner and should have because the horses knew that it probably wasn't the best idea but we listened to the humans in that case and it was a mistake. Um, and I immensely regret it because I think it set him back an awful lot, but it was a lesson that I needed to learn, I guess. And well, the good news is, yeah, that it's amazing what they do for us. You're, yeah, you're exactly. Like, I'm so glad nothing it. happened. And yeah, that's how we find exactly. our balance. We find our balance by swaying too far one way and then too far the other. And then you find yeah. your middle you know, being balanced is not about, yeah, it's not about finding that middle and staying there. That's rigidity and inflexibility because that might not be appropriate for all conditions. When the wind blows, you should be able to flex to that and bend to it and be plastic. So like we find our balance by swaying and your story about the mountains and my story about the trail is an example of two professionals who have been there and went too far in one direction and use it as a lesson to bring us back from the brink. And yeah. hopefully, hopefully use that as lessons for our students to say, now you don't have to go as far as we did. Exactly. We went, we went so far so that you don't have to. And let us be honest about that storyline so that you know what the boundaries are. And even then, some students learn best by doing. So you have to hold space yeah. for them as they go out and, and do their own. mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they come back and they say, oh, I did X and it fried my horse's brain. And I'm like, well, shit. And they go, yeah, shit. And it's like, okay, well, let's pick up the pieces. Let's find some peace. Let's find some peace from our broken pieces. And we can. 
and we will and this is oh, going to be sure. instructive for you you know not yeah. destructive yeah. yeah writing is like a mosaic of moments that you then put together to create like a stained glass art piece i Love guess that. where it's like they're not all the same color they're not all the same shape but they all come together to form the bigger picture um and i think that's a great way of looking at it because then it frees up the ability to make mistakes and even if it's bad mistakes that could have hurt the horse like i think that's mm. where people get so ashamed of it that mm. they're afraid to talk about it but mm. we're only human and you don't know until you know um right and it's how you come back and learn from the mistakes that i think says the most because if you continue making the mistake then it uh, intentionally then it's you don't probably view it as a mistake but it's necessary to learn and even though sometimes it result like in my case i definitely did injure my horse um and I regret it, but it was also a very good lesson because, like, I was like, wow, like, he would literally go to the ends of the earth for me. Like, if I wow. needed, like, he, he would, like, he put his body and his life on the line just to listen to me and trust me and follow me in that scenario. Um, and it wasn't a scenario where I deserved it. So it made me appreciate mm. how much horses are willing to give to humans. Um because it was just like wow like even when they shouldn't they will and wow they're amazing, they're amazing. animals they're amazing. yeah they are and i think amazing. for emotional health they're like one of the best animals to learn from because they're such mm -hmm. emotional animals and we don't appreciate it enough um mm -hmm. i do but yeah <laughs> i do now i do now yeah <laughs> yeah it took it's me the a while of everything i do it's the center of everything i do is appreciating that aspect of them that really forms the center yeah yeah the heart of yeah horsemanship is the emotional part of it and an emotional intelligence. I think so. I yeah. think so. I think so. That might not be true for everyone, and it doesn't have to be true for everyone. Um, other people find different language to describe it, language that holds less weight for them. Some people just can't get past that word emotional. Mm -hmm. And um, well, that's maybe a deliberate filter that I use to make sure I'm yeah. working with the right people. But um I really believe that's kind of genuinely the heart of the matter, you know. 100%. Yeah. And I really respect you and, like, I love what you do, too, because I think also, like, having, like, because of, like, the patriarchal concepts in society and how a lot of men aren't taught to feel emotions, I think coming from a man and calling your business emotional horsemanship and really, like, talking about expressing emotion sharing emotion it sets such a good example for young men that might not be able to access that part of themselves yet because maybe, a lot of them aren't allowed to maybe but i'm also a gay man so that's a little bit different for people people will either give me a free pass to kind of be like oh you're not a man you're not a woman you're a gay person right so i've had that yeah. i've had that attitude from people which is fine that's their journey but then yeah. there are people who just won't deal with you at all because you're a gay oh, person. So that's fine. That's so and frustrating. I just don't, it means I just have to work twice as hard and be twice yeah. as good as everybody else to get half as fast. So I just let it make me rather than break me. And I've got plenty of privileges that other people don't have. I'm white and I'm male presenting, right? Mm -hmm. Until you get to know me and you realize I'm a queer person. But where I'm a queer person, I don't have privilege, right? So yeah. Um, I check I check my privileges before I check my lack of privileges. If I just want to make sure I'm not being yeah. problematic in that respect. But um, yes, we do need more male voices out there who are 
speaking like this, but I'm really clear. I never want this to become like a gender-based issue because there's, there's a lot of high school, like cool boys club, cool girls club. There are certain training modalities that I would love to be more uh, ingrained in part of that community, but there's a cool girls club, like girls only attitude around it. And so I don't go in. There's a famous trainer who I used to adore her work, adore it, adore it. I would have, I was one of those ideal clients where it's like, take my money. When you make an online course, take my money, I'm in. And then when they published the course, the course was even in, I won't name it because it would out the the instructor, but the name of the course had the word her, H-E-R in it, in the name of the course. And in the subheading of the course, it was, for compassionate horse women or something. And I'm like, well, fuck my drag, right? Fuck my drag, right? Yeah. Like, like uh, how, why are you making that choice to make it about a women's issue? And that then, then they made posts that women are responsible for the future of horsemanship. And I'm like, I Everyone thought you is. were more evolved than that. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, fine. So I'm really clear that I don't want it to be a yeah. gender-based issue. And I've been canceled. Like Mustang Maddie came after me once because I called her out on making it a gender-based issue in the comments section. And I learned not to call people out in their comment section anymore. I just don't do it. If I have a problem, I make my own post about it. Okay. I yeah. don't call them out in their comment section anymore. So my bad, like I brought the dirt, right? Yeah. But she did come after me for it. I'm like, why are you making this like a gender-based issue? Can't this just not be a gender-based issue? Why do you have to demonize men in this process? And then she really came after me and then Unbridled Goddess came after me and they all piled on oh, no. and canceled <laughs> me for it. And I got a show oh, ban on, on Instagram for it. This was like a couple of years ago. So like, I'm really clear that I don't want this to be a gender-based yeah. issue please don't make this a gender-based issue there are so many gender-based issues in the world out there at the moment let us not make horses and horsemanship yeah. one of them you know because we've got enough problems in the horsemanship community that we don't need oh, to yeah. add human gender politics on top of this like how many woke subjects does the modern ethical horse person have to contend with before they can go out there and trail ride their horse and not feel like they're going to die and not feel like they're violating some kind of code of conduct somehow. Yeah. Like, um, can I have a pink helmet? Does, is that okay? Like, you know, people need Who cares? to, like, yeah. right. We need to not do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So for me, this is really about horses and horses in the first place. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think, I think that's really cool to hear you like it, not acknowledge your privilege, but then also the fact that you, are such a strong voice and you can be a strong voice um, for people that are underrepresented like minorities in the horse world, I think is huge because they need to see people that they like them just existing as their authentic selves and mm-hmm. just being, because I, I think that's the hard part for some people is they don't necessarily always have role models that get to resemble who they are yeah. and who they want to be. I had an intern application recently um, and they wrote on their CV um, their qualifications. Qualifications were, you know, vet tech or whatever their qualifications were. And one of the dot points was a single word, qualifications, queer. Mm-hmm. And I went, very, very good. Because I live in a queer house. And if you're going to come and intern with us, you're going to be in a queer house. And if you're uncomfortable with that, don't come and intern with me. Don't come and client with me at my house. Don't even come into my business if you're uncomfortable with that. Yeah. 
I've been in Northeast Wyoming when someone asked me, and so where is your wife while you're here with us? Mm. And I said, well, my boyfriend is back in Spain. And a cold Northeast Wyoming chill just blew through the room for oh. half a second. And then we just moved on with our day. And yeah. nobody treated me any differently. Good. Everyone in that clinic were very open-minded and just treated me as normal. They're Perfect. all Trump. Many of them were Trump voting Republicans, but they just treated me like every like everybody else and with a lot of cowboy respect. Good. Yeah. So, but then, you know, I did a clinic in California and people are showing up late with Starbucks in their hand. And I'm like, you could maybe go to Northeast Wyoming and learn a thing or two about yeah. respect, right? Yeah. So you never know where you're going to find respect and uh, affiliative interactions with people. Yeah. So I try to remain open-minded to all types of people until yeah. they prove me otherwise. But when yeah, someone give them shows a chance. Yeah, yeah, when someone shows me who they are, I believe you the first time. You Karen yeah. me once, then you're a Karen and I believe you. Right? <laughs> yeah. I believe you, right? That totally yeah. makes sense. No, that yeah. that's a lot of wisdom. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and doing this because I think that this will be a really good conversation for people to hear because you're just so authentic and open about your thoughts on things and your feelings which I think a lot of people resonate with and I know that I have from your posts as well um, and I really enjoy the content that you put out thank you Shelby I really appreciate you having me here thank you everyone for tuning in to today's podcast I hope you enjoyed the discussion and I hope that you all came out of it learning things or having different perspectives or having your perspective validated I really enjoyed this podcast with Lockie and I'm looking forward to doing more podcast interviews with all types of horse people so if anyone has a suggestion for someone that they would like to see me have a discussion with on my podcast or would like to see me interview I'm always open to suggestions because I'm hoping to have more conversations with all the different types of horse trainers on my podcast to have some variety so that it's not just all monologues. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Let me know what you think. And as always, if you enjoyed the podcast, it is so appreciated if you share it and send it to your friends if you enjoy it. All the shares and discussion of the podcast really helps spread the word of my channel and it helps me continue making these content for you. So if you do that, it's so appreciated. Thank you everyone for listening. If you're interested in checking out my other pages, there are links down below in the description of this podcast. And you can also check out my website, milestoneequestrian.ca for more info on myself, a free resources page, and more. You can check that out at milestoneequestrian.ca. There's also a page that's all about the new book that I just released for anyone who's interested in checking that out. My new book is called The Other Side of Horsemanship and I'm super proud of it. It talks about my journey as an equestrian as I alter my methods of training and learn and develop as a horse person. So have a great day everyone and I hope you enjoyed the podcast.